Bluegrass Jamalong is proud to be sponsored by Collings Guitars and Mandolins. If you're attending the NAMM show in January, stop by the Collings booth to say hello to the team, get hands-on with their selection of customised acoustics and electrics, and check out some exciting new prototypes they're working on for 2024. They'll also have a few of their world-class artists on hand demoing various instruments. And if you can't attend, don't forget to follow their Instagram and Facebook accounts throughout the show for photos, videos, and the latest news. Collings guitars are hand-built from the sound up in Austin, Texas. This episode is also brought to you by Peghead Nation, the home of Roots Music Instruction. If one of your 2024 resolutions is to improve as a musician, Peghead Nation is the place to go. They have 65 streaming video courses for guitar, mandolin, banjo, fiddle, dobro, bass and ukulele from some of the leading names in acoustic music. Courses cover bluegrass, old time, Irish music and swing, plus lessons dedicated to improvisation, theory and ear training. Your first course is just $20 a month and you can add more for $10. Try any course free for a month with the promo code JAMALONG. Make 2024 a year of more music at pegheadnation.com. Hi, this is Jack Hentrelwood, and you're listening to Bluegrass Jam Along, the podcast for anyone and everyone who plays bluegrass. My guest on Bluegrass Jam Along this week is Jack Hinchelwood. Uh, Jack is a guitarist. He's the winner of the Wayne Henderson Guitar Championship, Knoxville World's Fair Guitar Championship, and a two-time winner at Galax as well. Um, and he's also the former director of the Crooked Road, Virginia's Heritage Music Trail. Jack, welcome to the podcast. Thank you, Matt. What a pleasure to be with you. It's great to have you here, and particularly exciting in the year we're in, because there's a project you're co-producing uh, to celebrate what would have been Doc Watson's 100th birthday. Um, and I'm really excited to talk about that and also to talk about a record of yours that we'll come on to a bit later. But yeah, Doc Watson would have been 100 in March, and you've teamed up with co-producer Ted Olson to put a show together to sort of take around and celebrate Doc's music, not just through music, but also through sharing stories and memories of Doc. Um, and I'd love to hear a bit more about that. Yeah, this kind of came about because uh, Ted, uh, who's done extensive writing uh, and research, he's just a great Appalachian music historian. He's a professor of Appalachian studies at East Tennessee State University, and um, he's written about the famous Bristol sessions uh, and other sessions that took place in the early or, or late 1920s, early 1930s, um, and he worked recently with the Craft Recording Group on a compilation. It's a four-CD book box set called Doc Watson, Life's Work, a Retrospective, uh, and Ted uh, did the research and the um, album notes for that, and he is uh, right at the moment, he's uh, nominated for a Grammy for Best Album Notes. Um, and we got our fingers crossed that come February 5th, he'll uh, win a Grammy for that. And uh, so he worked on that uh, recording, which came out November uh, 21, 2021. And uh, we had a sort of a release, mini release concert uh, with music, and Ted spoke about Doc's legacy back uh, in November of 2021 when that came out. 
And he invited myself and Wayne Henderson and Jack Lawrence, who played with Doc many years, uh, to come be a part of that, which we did. And the release of that recording, coupled with the fact that 2023 was going to be the, the year uh, of uh, Doc's 100th birthday, uh, we just thought, uh, what a great reason to uh, celebrate Doc's music. And so we decided we would uh, put a concert program together, Ted and Wayne and Jack and myself. And uh, we wanted to also have T. Michael Coleman, who, mm-hmm. along with Jack Lawrence, T. Michael, um, the two of them played with Doc, I believe, longer than any other artist that Doc ever worked with. And so... They've got a wealth of, of great stories and uh, our concert program. <clears throat> we try, we, we do the music, of course, but uh, it's also interspersed with great uh, stories about, about Doc and um, things that hopefully people that love his music will also find equally interesting. Yeah, it sounds like a really cool evening. It's um, not just, it sounds like not only, you know, are you sharing memories and, and music, but also encouraging people who come along to the shows to share any memories as well. Just sounds like yes. a lovely collaborative event. Yeah, we we really have uh, tried to encourage that, and um, uh, we've had some some great feedback from people with clearly just memories of their of Doc touching them, uh, their lives in a in a big way, and. Um, getting to hear him uh, at a jam session till five in the morning before he left to go uh, catch a plane to another uh, job, uh, I, I recall, was a, a memory of someone. Um, so, yeah, those those are great. And we do uh, solicit those from audiences and uh, share them. Uh, Ted typically uh, would share those on stage. That's really cool. And presumably both with Jack and with T. Michael, you know, spending time touring with a musician like Doc is one thing, but touring with Doc, I presume involved spending a lot of time with him because he's, you know, somebody who's blind requires a bit more assistance on the road than the average musician. And so they must have not just memories of sharing a stage, but just memories of of being close to him for a long time. Right. They both definitely do. Uh, and I, I'm so thoroughly enjoying myself, uh, getting to hear stories, uh, about Doc that I've, I've never heard. And even small things like, um, we, we played a show, uh, did this concert in uh, Roanoke, Virginia for the Friends of the Blue Ridge. And they had a pre-concert reception they were having food for and they wanted to know what were Doc's favorite foods. And um, I now know that uh, he you couldn't go wrong if you served him up a plate of uh, sea bass or lasagna or country steak with uh, mushroom gravy and topped off uh, with key, a big slice of key lime pie. That was good eating as far as Doc was concerned. And, uh, you know, that's the kind of thing that, uh, T. Michael and Jack knew and observed from traveling and, of course, 
going out to get dinner and, and eat while on the road. And how do you, um, how do you sort of choose which music to put in the show? Does it change? Does it look like to change each time? Or have you got a sort of set list of favorites you've put together? Uh, there are Doc's repertoire. It was so extensive. Uh, that's a real plus for doing multiple concerts. Uh, we, we will probably never do more than scratch the surface of all the music that he knew. And so, yes, it, it helps keep us interested and keep the shows fresh and so forth. And so um, we structure the shows to where uh, all of us have an opportunity to play our favorite uh, pieces of Doc, and those tend to change from show to show. Um, and uh, then we also do uh, songs to as a group, um, and we surely make an effort to um, – so that folks will go home hearing those really essential Doc Watson songs, you know, Deep River Blues and Tennessee Stud and Black Mountain Rag and mm. uh, those kinds of things. Um, I know if, if, if I went to a show for to hear Doc music and, and didn't hear songs like that, I'd be wondering why they left that out. So we try to uh, include those and, um, and and try to do a uh, try to delve into all those different genres that Doc was so well versed in, from blues and gospel and show tunes and uh, fiddle tunes um, and rockabilly. Uh, just his again, his repertoire was was so extensive. Uh, I find that to be one of the most remarkable things about him. So we try to make the shows uh, reflect that as well. I think that's one of the really cool things because people think of Doc and talk about Doc as being sort of um, an incredibly authentic musician and incredibly sort of just like a very honest delivery of everything that he did. But the range of things that he did was huge. And to sort of bring that same level of just directness to, to everything. Is that's that's actually, that's proper musical character, isn't it? I, I think so. I think this is why he was such a beloved artist. Uh, one of the reasons is that authenticity. People connect to that and and feel that and respond to that. And uh, I think uh, certainly for me, that's that's one of the things about him that's uh, so appealing. And there's a definite sense even though Doc, you know, Doc sang whatever he wanted to sing, wherever it was from. Um, there's also a very strong sense that Doc has a very geographic connection to a specific bit of the world as well and very deep roots within the music of a certain area. And I know sort of you grew up not too far from, from that part of the world. And it's, it's a, you know, it's a very, it comes through in the music. It feels very, very centered in, in place as well. It certainly does. He he's a great example um, of the the artist that uh, achieved a level of success that could have taken him almost anywhere, um, and yet he he knew where home was uh, deep in the Blue Ridge in North Carolina in the mountains, um, 
And so that's where he lived his entire life. Uh, makes me think of Ralph Stanley as a, another great example of that. Um, Ralph uh, lived in his entire life, not far from where he and Carter rambled around uh, over in uh, uh, Dickinson County here in, in southwest Virginia, where I live. Um, so, yeah, he's very identified with that. I think that might have contributed to folks that knew of him from the folk revival uh, as this incredible mountain musician with that mountain music repertoire. That's what then surprised them so much when he would whip out a pop standard or a rockabilly song. Um, you know, they, they had to get educated quick as to, uh, you know, just to keep up with uh, the songs and things that he could he could present on stage. It's really interesting. I find it personally very interesting just because, you know, I, I grew up in the UK. I've always lived in the UK. Uh, but I've listened to this music for, you know, a number of years. And the idea of it coming from a specific place, it's easy to be romanticised from my point of view and to be a sort of slightly unreal place that exists in these songs. But just the connection of... Doc's music to where Doc lived and, you know, even further back than that, just sort of reading and discovering that his grandmother knew people in songs like Tom Dooley. They're real people, real events that actually happened in a specific location. They're not just out of a storybook kind of thing. Um, I think there's something remarkable about that. Yes, that, that's part and parcel with authenticity, uh, I think. Um he was a tremendous student of of all music, but he was a great student of um, the music of his family, his community, and and that area that he came from. Um, and we know he he early on as a child got to hear phonograph records of um, early country music, and then when radio came along. Uh, devoted listener to that. And so he was pretty much a sponge, um, I think, uh, soaking up everything he heard. Um, and um, Lord knows his sense of hearing was uh, was quite advanced uh, in, in part to uh, being a blind uh, person. And... Um, he was he was something the way he absorbed music and built that incredible repertoire yeah and it's such a sort of body of work and such a deep well of stuff it's something you can just go back to again and again it's not um it's not something you can ever tire of really uh, i'm i'm certain i've never tired of it don't expect i ever will and in this process, I've dug deeper into Doc's music than I ever did previously. And what a joy that has been, uh, not only revisiting uh, songs I had heard and, and you know, maybe knew and, and played for years, but uh, quite a bit of, of material. Uh, and this is probably thanks to YouTube uh, and all the access we have these days to 
great historic recordings and and so forth. Um, and it's done nothing but just expand my appreciation for Doc as a as a musician and as a person. Um, I've I've listened to far more interviews of Doc uh, than I had listened to in the past, and gotten such a better sense of him as as a person. Plus, talking with uh, Jack and Wayne and T. Michael and and Ted's work and so forth. Um, just a fascinating um, person. Uh, not just his music, his his outlook on what was important to him, um, which s- seemed first and foremost to be he wanted to be able to make a decent living, a, a, a provide a good life for his family. That seems to have always been uppermost in his mind. And um, everything from having a conversation with Merle when Merle asked him if he ever thought about going commercial, I think in the sense of, um, uh, you know, uh, being dictated to about what music to play and, and how often to play and, and, and how much time to spend on the road and where to go play and all of that that comes with uh, a, a real commercial effort to uh, make it big, so to speak, in the music business. And he told Merle um, that that was basically that that was not for, for him, that um, he, he wanted, again, to uh, make, uh, make a good living uh, for, for his family and um, he he didn't he had no interest in that rat race as he called it, and um, I think Merle agreed. <laughs> I think Merle probably said, "Good, I'm glad to hear you say that." Uh, that was seems to be Merle's temperament, uh, pretty much as well. And it's a tricky balance if if your musical career is sort of providing for your family, but it's also the thing that takes you away from your family, you know, particularly if you spend your whole life in one place surrounded by your family and by the the area that, you know, you know, every, every show is something that takes you away from that. Yep. It's, it's really interesting hearing you talk about diving more into Doc's music. You know, I'm sure you know more about Doc and Doc's music than I ever will. And the idea that you're still finding new things in there and, and enjoying that. And there's a real sort of, it'd be really nice to think that, this hundredth birthday brings more people to Doc's music and introduces him to a, a new audience and a, a sort of deeper, a deeper understanding from the people who love his music already. That's definitely one of the goals is to um, get some uh, some more people to understand, appreciate, and and love Doc's music. Uh, we've talked about that frequently. Um, I think what, it's probably inevitable. And one of the people who's sort of definitely helping with that at the moment is Billy Strings. And I know you've been invited to take the Docker 100 show along to a special gig of Billy's as part of the as part of the tour. Right. Uh, so uh, uh, Doc's actual birthday is March 3rd, and. Um, it's a day on which I plan to eat a big slice of uh, key lime pie, 
and um, and Billy is uh, going to be doing a concert at the Winston. Uh, it's the Lawrence Joel Veterans Memorial Coliseum in Winston Salem on Doc's birthday, March third. So that concert, he wanted to pay tribute to Doc, and so uh, he invited uh, our group, the Doc at One Hundred. Uh, Ted, myself, and Wayne Jack, and T. Michael. Uh, he's also invited uh, Molly Tuttle and Brian Sutton, and we're just going to go dock all night long. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and uh, so I think that will um, – he draws he, – he's such a phenomenal artist and has got so many people excited about roots music in general and bluegrass. And now here's this tribute to Doc. Um, I can't help but think in a big way uh, there's going to be a lot of people who may not have been aware of Doc before that that will be aware of Doc uh, afterward. And Billy's been promoting uh, Doc for uh, a long time. So um, he... He definitely cut his teeth on on Doc's music, as like the rest of us. And you sort of know, like, for all the places Billy's taken his own music and all the the sort of experimentation that's in there too. When he sings those songs, you know he means them. Like, there's just as much directness and honesty when Billy sings that material as when anybody does. Yeah, you know, I was just um, listening to. Uh, Billy's version of uh, Little Sadie and thinking what a, you know, what a fantastic uh, job he did or does on on that particular song and, of course, many others. But um, he's he's definitely hitting on all cylinders and you can you can tell Doc's I mean, you can hear Doc's influence, of course, uh, in there uh but of course he has added he adds his own touches uh throughout uh whatever it is he's doing yeah so where will people be able to see these shows i know you're probably still putting together the list for the rest of the year but what have you got coming up uh we've uh kind of got a, a string the the next show is at the birchmere in alexandria virginia uh, that's uh, February 26th, and then uh, March 2nd uh, will be at the Ramcat, which is a wonderful uh, music uh, venue in, in Winston-Salem. Um, and then the next night, we'll be staying there in Winston-Salem and joining uh, Billy on his Doc Tribute show March the 3rd at the Coliseum. Uh, March 11th, it's... Uh, going to be uh, in Bassett, Virginia um, uh, for a program called Rives on the Road. Rives is the theater there in Martinsville uh, that uh, takes shows out throughout the uh, community there. And March 25 uh, at uh, the Wortham Center for the Performing Arts in Asheville, uh, North Carolina. Um, the, uh, May the 8th at the McLaughlin Center for the Arts 
at Emory Henry College uh, in Virginia. And uh, we've got a few other, let's see, I know September 9th is at uh, the Paramount Theater in Burlington, North Carolina. So uh, pretty much be out there all through 2023 at least and um, working on uh, trying to get out uh, in the Northeast up in the Boston and New York area um, and uh, possibly uh, out in the um, Pacific, out uh, in the California area, uh, try to s- swing out there if we can as well. It'd be great. It'd be really exciting to see those sort of, it, there's something lovely about it, not just being a one-off thing, but something that continues through the year, that it's not just Doc's birthday we're celebrating, it's sort of a, a year of celebrating Doc. Yeah, for sure. That's that's just been incredibly fun for for all of us. So I'd I'd like to keep doing it, keep doing it, keep doing it. And um, uh, if anybody wants to find those list of shows, it's on our website. That's just doc at one hundred dot com. That's just doc at and the number one hundred dot com. And uh, all the shows, of course, are listed there that are booked already, and and new ones will be included there. Cool. I'll make sure I include a link to that in the show notes as well, so people can click through and go and find that. Then um, that'd be great. And and sort of also a bit of an overlap with all of this. I'd like to talk to you about uh, a record that you've made, which you know a lot of the music is. There's a lot of overlap there. Um, it's called Fifty Years in the Making, and just to sort of described as an anthology of old time bluegrass and blues. And it's such a great collection of songs and such a, you know, there's so many things in there that Doc would have played. There's even, you know, Blackberry Rags in there, which Doc composed himself. Um, I'd love to chat a little bit about that project. It sounds like it took you, you know, a couple of years to put together and it's got a really interesting mix of material and people on there. Right. It, uh, this was my pandemic project. <laughs> um, when we couldn't get together and we, we couldn't see our friends, uh, I decided to put together this uh, recording project. It's called 50 Years in the Making because that's how long those songs and, and tunes have been gathering in my repertoire. And um, so uh, I started working on it uh, either January or February of 2020 when COVID hit uh, just a few weeks later. And so um, worked on it again for, for a couple of years and had such wonderful uh, support from artists that I've loved their music. There's uh, 24 different artists that helped record the music. Um, folks that'll be familiar to your listeners like uh, Doyle Lawson, um, maybe Phil Wiggins, incredible blues harmonica player, uh, Rob Ikes, uh, Jimmy Van Cleave, uh, wonderful fiddler. Um, anyway, 24 in all, I left out a bunch of wonderful artists. And um, just had such an incredible time playing this music that 
I've loved for all those all these years and never had a chance to record and finally did with some of the folks whose music I admire the most. And so it was an incredibly gratifying, satisfying recording project to put together. And um, that came out in uh, April of 2022 when we were able to start getting back together and, and we put on a couple of concerts, um, had, uh, uh, Butch Robbins and, uh, Trey Hensley, uh, uh, helped about, about, uh, 10 of the artists, uh, played in the actual concerts that we did two nights. Um, and, uh, I'd also note that one of your, fellow UKers um, played with me on one of Doc's, uh, one of the songs from Doc's repertoire that's an, an, one of these ancient ballads that uh, Francis Child compiled in his his books called Geordie, or Georgie as Doc used to call it. And uh, I always uh, loved that tune and, and song and wanted to have horns on it. it. It deals with ancient times with kings and uh, kingly courts and that sort of thing. And to me, a horn instrument is the perfect sort of mood setter for anything to do with, with uh, courts and royalty and all of that. Um, and so I ended up working with uh, Stephen Mead, who's a remarkable uh, brass player, particularly the euphonium, uh, which is um, very similar to a baritone horn that more people might be familiar with. And it, I thought, just set that song off wonderfully. Um, it's a dark, kind of a rich tone uh, horn, uh, and it fits, uh, I thought, very well with that particular song. Yeah. And so... You know, when, when it was hard to get together with friends during the pandemic, this recording allowed me to make new friends like Stephen Mead. Uh, and it's really cool. I mean, I, you know, I grew up in the UK and I spent some of my youth playing in brass bands. So those, I love that kind of sound. Those, those sort yeah. of darker sort of brass sounds is something just haunting about them. Mm-hmm. Yeah. He, uh, he lives up in Manchester, I believe. It's, um, and it's a really interesting collection of people you've got on there as well. And like you say, maybe it's slightly easier to do some of that when you don't have to physically be in a room with people. Because there's names, like you said, there's names on there that people will know, like Dole Lawson, Michael Cleveland, um, and some great younger people. Dory Freeman's on there, like Trey Hensley. You know, it's a, it's a, it's a lovely mix of people. And if you don't have to be able to get them all physically together, it allows that's, you just to pick and choose sort of track by track a little bit, doesn't it? That's that's our modern-day technology. Um that allows us to, uh, to be able to do something like that. Um, I had, I had a few folks that came here to record other folks that were in other places, either recorded at home if they had that capability or they, I would make arrangements for them to visit, um, a studio. Um, great, uh, great, uh, Ellen Piper, uh, by the name of Ronan Brown, um, did did his recording uh for me at home 
uh, on uh, another child ballad, uh, the one that Dory Freeman joined on, and uh, he did such a lovely job. And I, what I kept being surprised uh, because uh, uh, surprised, not surprised so much, but delighted uh, at the creativity and thoughtfulness of the artists that helped. I would have suggestions on on what I was looking for uh, for them to to do. And then they would add something, a twist that, you know, was so creative and uh, just made it. And one example that I think about all the time in that regard is I had asked uh, Michael Cleveland if he would put, we, we recorded a Bill Monroe instrumental called Southern Flavor. And I asked uh, Michael if he would put twin fiddles on uh, tracks on it. And lo and behold, it came back and he had overdubbed a third fiddle. Hmm. Somehow he just knew uh, that what would really make that tune soar would be all three parts. And so that's what he did. And I'm very grateful for that. And it's really interesting hearing some of those sounds like the euphonium or the union pipes on these songs because like as a Brit I'm fascinated by the journey some of these songs have made over from my side of the Atlantic to your side and you know there's many of the, the ballads that were originally British songs that made it over there and then were sort of collected in Appalachia and brought back over to and we, you know and I'm listening to music now that's funneled back through Doc Watson and funneled back through all sorts of people and that constant refreshing of the music and the journey it makes from one side of the Atlantic to the other. I find that endlessly fascinating. Uh, I do as well. Um, um, this, this is um, a wonderful uh, subject that Ted Olson, of course, is very knowledgeable about uh, the, the, the transfer of that music. And it's, it's gone both ways. I remember hearing Mick Maloney talk about um, how U S minstrel shows uh, ended up creating, you know, banjo craze in Ireland and, mm. um, for which, uh, I'm not sure Mick ever forgave us, but anyway, <laughs> um, yeah, it's, uh, this is what music is. It's, uh, it's a shared experience and, uh, it travels, travels fast. Seems like. Yeah, and um, I'm going to play one of the tracks from the record at the end of this podcast so people can have a listen and obviously link to the record so people can go and hear it as well. But I think that that really does sort of overlap with where we started talking about Doc and about music being a conversation and a journey and, a you know, just songs travel and then songs settle down for a while and change and then travel again. And I think a lot of these songs that people will hear when they dig into Doc's music as all this stuff surfaces around his birthday. You know, they'll hopefully give a new life to a lot of this stuff. And mm -hmm. it'll start, that'll be the start of some journeys. People will yeah. pick them up and take them and do what they do with them. And they'll find themselves in other bits of the world, hopefully. And it all sort of starts again. You know, it just occurred to me from what you said that uh, what an interesting uh, project it would be to trace a song, take um, a song from someone like myself, 
um, and find out where I learned that. Go connect with that uh, other other person. Find out where they learned it. And I'm I'm sure some of these uh, songs have have made interesting journeys from person to person to person. That would be a fascinating little study. And like much like objects, people repurpose things and people use the bits they need. And you know, I one of the records that I love is Fairport Convention's Legion Leaf, which has a track on it called Matty Groves, which has the same tune as Shady Grove. And I always sort of thought they must be the same song with different lyrics. And then I read an interview with Richard Thompson where he said, no, they just nicked the tune from Shady Grove because it fit, you know. Uh, yeah. You know, these tunes do the rounds and keep coming back. And, of course, Matty Groves is one of Doc's songs that uh, I've, ne- uh, I've never played that one. Um, I think it's quite challenging. Um, if I recall, he, he does some very quick uh finger-picking uh, a, a role that uh, was all his own. Uh, being a person who played, who finger-picked with just a thumb pick and his and just his first finger, he did some remarkable things that I, I play with two, two fingers and a thumb pick, and um, I'm, I stand amazed at when you listen to things like Doc's guitar, and and realize, my gosh, he's he's doing all of that with just one finger, uh, is kind of mind blowing. Yeah, yeah, and just you know that synthesis of him hearing, you know, Mabel Carter, and hearing Jimmy Rogers, and hearing Will Travis, and putting it all together into a thing that became Doc Watson. It's yeah. you know, it's another one of those. It's another part of that musical journey. You take what you find and you make it your own. That's it. He. He was a genius. Well, let's really hope that, um, you know, the next few months lead a lot more people to Doc's music and make it their own and take it on the next bit of its journey. And who knows where it'll be in a hundred years time. Yeah, that's for sure. Thanks so much for coming on to talk about this. Um, it's going to be a really exciting year and, uh, yeah, our people are in for a treat when they come to see these shows. Matt, it's been such a pleasure to talk with you and thanks for putting this together and um, keep picking. Yeah, you too. Thank you.
Bluegrass Jamalong is proud to be sponsored by Collins Guitars and Mandolins, making some of the finest guitars and mandolins in the world since the 1970s. Visit collinsguitars.com and find out why.